It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 100, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. And this is your guest, Chris Blanchard. For episode 100, several listeners requested that I either do an interview for myself or get somebody to interview me, so I invited my good friend Liz Graznak to do the job. Liz was also the first guest on the podcast, so it seemed to me like that would have some nice symmetry. Liz reached out to many of the previous guests on the show to get their input on what to ask me, and we dig into what I've learned from interviewing over 100 farmers since the show's beginnings during a drive to a field day in Minnesota. We explore how I came to farming in Iowa from an urban childhood in the Pacific Northwest, and Liz gives me a chance to share how my farm grew, the challenges we faced, and what led me to leave the farm behind to pursue my current work as a farm educator. It was a lot of fun to sit on the other side of the microphone from Liz, and I hope you enjoy the show. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible through the support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven, built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on strong, legal foundations. Farm Commons provides practical legal resources to help farmers understand and respond to how the law affects them. Free guides and tutorials available at farmcommons.org. Chris Blanchard, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Well, that's kind of a weird thing. (laughs) We are so delighted to have you this morning. (laughs) Liz, thank you so much for being willing to to do this side of the interview. It is my real honor. Thank you. Um, So I'm just going to dive in, okay? I want to start off by thanking you for all of your hard work and dedication to advancing the farming movement that is taking place across our country. Beginning small farmers now have a voice and an educator providing them with practical skills and knowledge through the internet and through your podcasts. Um, We are all acutely aware of the need for thousands of more small farms. And if we are going to rebuild a resilient and viable food system, and you are playing a very significant role in that effort. And so thank you. Liz, it's really an honor to be able to kind of put a cap on my farming career by doing something like this. And just the, the reception that I've had is beyond anything I could have imagined. So, and, and, uh, and, and of course you were there to kick it off. So, well, yes, yes. I do remember that very fondly two years ago, almost, almost just a month ago. I mean, we, we did the recording in early 2015, um, right at the beginning of the year. So two years ago. Yep. Yep. So yeah. it's been, it's been a wild two years. Wild. Um, yes. So. I did want you to know that I reached out to a number of uh, your past interviewees um, to get their input and feedback for this morning's interview. And so we're going to, uh, I'm going to pull from a lot of their questions that they were wanting to ask you. Okay. Wow. That's awesome, Liz. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we're, 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 We're recording the 100th episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, which is absolutely incredible. And you have covered an amazing amount of ground and dug into the lives of 100 successful farmers, innovators, and educators around the country. And I'm going to ask you some of their questions and some of my own. 
So the very first one <laughs> is, have you had any surprises or learned something unexpected in the conversations that you've had with these successful farmers? You know, I think the biggest surprise that I've had was the number of people that that have succeeded at setting boundaries around their their farming work world. You know, that wasn't something that I really had any modeling for and it's certainly not something that I ever did. Um and and it's something I've struggled with even even after I've gotten out of farming to kind of have not just be working all of the time and to kind of, you know, to put some limits on that. And yeah, I just I don't know. That was that was something the first time I heard it where somebody was like, yeah, we work from we work from eight to five. And it just it stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know what to say next. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, that that does lead into uh, a sort of theme of a, around a bunch of questions that I have. So I'm going to just hang on for a second to ans- ask you those questions. Um, but. Would you say that setting boundaries then is a theme maybe that you've heard and and had these conversations throughout all of the podcasts? Or is there another some some other theme that you think maybe has resonated sort of through all of your interviews? I don't I don't know that there's actually been a theme that's resonated through all of the interviews. I think that's one that's come up a lot. uh, And it's certainly the one that I've kind of fixated on. Um, You know, we've we've done such a diversity of people. You know, I've got, I've had folks on the show that have been farming for 30 or 40 years. And I've had folks on the show that have been farming for three and, and, you know, at all kinds of different scales. And, and I mean, if, if, if nothing else, it's that people are so willing to share information. And, you know, I remember one time on talking to my mom about giving a workshop at a conference on, a topic that had to do with farming. And, and she was like, okay, so you're going to go to a farming conference and you're going to give away the information about how you run your farm. (laughs) And it's funny because being in the organic farming movement, that was the first time I'd ever encountered the idea that anybody would be skeptical about that because Uh it is such a sharing movement. And I think that's, that's certainly something that's come out everywhere. Um, I mean, the idea that, that I've, gotten people on this show in June in Wisconsin, you know, and they're like, yeah, I can make time to make that happen is a real testament to the, the importance of, of sharing knowledge in our community and, and the importance that everybody places on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody wants anybody that is trying to do what we're doing. We want people to succeed. And so we're willing to share. You know, Senator Paul Wellstone from from Minnesota, he he had this saying that we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. And and again, I I mean, I want to emphasize, you know, a hundred a hundred episodes in now, you know, we get anywhere between eight and fifteen thousand downloads per episode, which which to me is just insane. Right. But but when I started this show, I mean, if you if you rewind back to, you know, we we started the show in February of of. 2015. So it was, and it was the last weekend in February because I actually timed it to start at the Moses Organic Farming Conference um, with three episodes in the bag. And, and, you know, throughout that spring, it just wasn't that big of a deal. People didn't really know about it. And yet 
when when I was calling, people that didn't even know me were willing to be on the show even before it had a reputation. And a lot of times now when I call, especially beginning farmers and say, you know, are you willing to be on the podcast? And they're like, oh, that'd be great. Such an honor. And I mean, that's really cool. It kind of makes sense when you when you have a big distribution that it would be a big deal to be on the show. But even when the show was nothing, people were willing to to throw in an hour and a half of their time and and help make sure that we're all doing better because we all do better when we all do better when we all do better. Right. Exactly. Who who is on your bucket list for future interviewees? Gosh, you know, John Paul Cortez is somebody that I've wanted to get on the show, and I'm still trying to convince Richard DeWild at Harmony Valley Farm to to get on the show. I think those are those would be my two big ones. You know, I mean, once you hit Elliot Coleman, I mean, what else? <laughs> we, you know, uh, so there there are, and I, there's a couple of others. You know, I I'm I'm always interested in in the challenges, so I'm I want to try to get like. Uh, I'd, I'd love to get Wendell Berry on the show, you know, yeah. even though he doesn't do screens, you know, uh-huh. and, and the same thing with Ann and Eric Nordell uh, out in Pennsylvania, you know, the horse yeah. farmers, uh, yeah. they've got, uh, but they don't do email, you know? Uh-huh. So, so I think just, you know, I, I, I love those kinds of challenges and we've, you know, we figured out how to get people on the phone and I think we've, we're still working out some of the quality issues with, with all of that. You know, it's funny in the podcasting world when, when, most of the conversation is how you get other other people on air who have Skype accounts and headsets. And the idea that I'm talking to farmers who oftentimes, first of all, getting them to sit still for 90 minutes is pretty hard. You know, so I've, I've had interviews where people were out weeding while they were on the phone, um, you know, and but then also just dealing with the whole the technological barriers has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I'm not the only one. I, I feel like you are in a super unique position given your history, um, your history farming, as an educator, um, doing these podcasts. I, I think that you just have a very unique perspective on the world of small-scale sustainable agriculture. And... It, I guess one thing is, how has the podcast maybe, has it changed your view of what farmers are doing and how we're doing it? For me, I guess I've been surprised by the diversity of farm models that seem to be working. Uh-huh. You know, I, I mean, you know, when you when you read an Elliot Coleman book or you read a book by JM48 and you go, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's. There's a thing. There's a way to make the farm work. But, but you know, I've talked to people who are doing uh, three acres with no employees and are are succeeding very well. That was Emily Oakley out in uh, Oklahoma. Uh-huh. Um, you know, somebody like Zoe Bradbury in California who's doing this her whole how she's got the land shared and how her her family has actually three different businesses, but they're all marketing things together, you know, and I think it's really easy to go, oh, there's one model that works. Uh-huh. There's a hundred models that work there's or a thousand models that work. And and there's and all of them come with the things that work great and the things that don't work great and things that could be better. Um, but but I guess that to me has been the most surprising thing. They, that there's um, just how many different farms are actually 
making it work in different ways in different places. Oklahoma? Really? <laughs> New Brunswick? New Brunswick? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I had to look New Brunswick up on the map, you know? <laughs> it's freaking cold up there. Yeah, but, and people and people are making it work, and that's I I don't know if that's a testament to uh, to the will of farmers, if that's a testament to organic growing or a testament to the local foods movement, but somehow I think it 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 speaks to something that's really real about about food and food as a tool for communicating with people, mm-hmm. you know, and that that I think no matter where you go, there are people that want to engage at that, and the trick being then to find how do you engage those people. Huh. In the in the right way to to make it work in your operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be CSA or a farmers market or a co-op or a any number of these different models that people are making work. Or or choosing to take your choosing to take your produce, you know, three and a half hours to market, or um, or or choosing to farm part time because that's what <laughs> that's what's going to work in your situation. Right. Um, but making those connections yeah. with the community. Yeah. Yep. yep. And that seems, and, you know, and again, when we talk about themes with the podcast. Um, you should have sent me that question in advance. I probably would have come up with something <laughs> eloquent to say, but, but I think that's, that's one too, for me around CSA, especially that's come out um, is, is how important that community aspect really is. And it's something that I've, I've thought about for a long time. And I know I've kind of hinted at this as we've, as we've had those conversations about CSA, but it, it, the, this idea of connection and, and community interviewing Don Zasada and, and Bridget Spann, which I did, I think after I actually talked to uh, Dan Kaplan, a Brookfield farm, which uh-huh. to me was one, again, that was, was, I, I walked away from that episode almost in tears because it was so, I was like, I was like, this is what, this is what I want to do, right? This is the conversation that I wanted to be having. And uh-huh. it, it really, it hit me at a really deep level. And I know it had, a, it hadn't, um, I think that was maybe the first episode where people were like, you've got, there's something here that you need to hear. And but anyway, so when we talked to to Don and and Bridget, um, they talked about bringing people to the farm, and and it wasn't so much about having the the personal relationship, but like creating a space where people could come and find a piece and find some peace in their lives, you uh-huh. know, um, and really experience what what farmers get to experience all the time, mm-hmm. and and I. I don't know. To me, that kind of combined with what Dan Kaplan talked about about the relationship and the the controlled experience of loss, and what um, what other folks have talked about about knowing your CSA members, and and I think this would be something that uh, if we go back to one of the very first, very early episodes, it was episode five with Patty Wright uh, talking about their their farm up in uh, Prairie Farm, Wisconsin, and. Uh- and how they bring those people to work on the farm. And that was a requirement. All of those things to me kind of come together around CSA and say, it's got to be something more than just vegetables in boxes. Right. And I think, and I think that's a message that really kind of percolates throughout the other marketing outlets too, whether it's a farmer's market or whether you're selling wholesale, somehow your food, if you're going to play the small market farmer game, somehow your food has to resonate at a deeper level with people. It has to be a tool for connection um, at in in some way, you know? 
Yeah, I because I don't, otherwise it's just, you could just go to the grocery store right. and buy your food. Right. Right? Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I think so, it's, and it's an interesting line to walk because I think there's, there is some need for us to emulate what the grocery stores are doing, right? If we really want to scale up the, the food system, we got to get food in the grocery stores. Brian Bates talked about that. I happen to agree with him. Um, that's where people buy their food. People don't buy food at farmer's market. They don't buy food through a CSA unless you live in a place like Madison, Wisconsin. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, people are buying their food at the grocery store. So we got to get it there for them. And it's got to meet certain standards and look a certain way to be able to fit in that slot on the shelf. Right. But at the right. same time, there's that question of how do we make it real for folks? Mm-hmm. And how do we maintain that that thing that's special about you know, about the local food movement. So I want to just jump back just a little bit. And I think it is a good place to segue into um, talking about a, a little bit about your history and your history, farming and farming for other people and then farming for yourself and running your own business and your family and then your transition out of farming. And there's your, your podcasts are full of success stories but we obviously are, are very aware that there's a lot of small scale farms out there that that have real challenges and that d- end up not making it. And I guess I, I was hoping you could speak to some of the struggles and the failures and the sacrifices that it takes to to do what we're doing and to be successful. I think it's hard to say that the the sacrifices are the same for everybody. But you know, farming is, it's more than a job. You know, it, it, it is, it is a lifestyle choice. And I think that always has to be balanced with the fact that it's also a job. You got to show up and you got to do the work and you got to be smart about it. You have to, you have to be in, you have to find markets where people want your food. You know, you have to do a good job of growing it. Um, You have to do a good job of doing the post-harvest handling. You're making investments. One of the things that strikes me again and again, and this I would say is less from the podcast than it is from some of the consulting work that I've done is how many farms I've gone to that where, you know, people have, I mean, people have obviously sunk their life savings into this, you know, everything they've got. That's what I did on my farm, everything I had and, and working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours or more a week to, to try to, to make the farm give back in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, and it, you know, it doesn't always work. And I think that's, that's something that's hard. Anytime you're presenting something like a podcast or workshops at a conference, um, you know, most people don't want to talk about, about what went wrong on their yeah. farm. And and most people I think don't really want to hear about what went wrong on the farm. And and I think there's something to that. I mean there there's certainly something to be folk to there's certainly something to be said for focusing on success, right? That that we tend to we move towards the things that we pay attention to. So I think it is there is some there's a lot of good to be had in holding up the successful farms. Um but I think there's there is certainly uh there is something to be learned from the the farms that don't make it from the farms that are struggling. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's one of the saddest things that I see is, is farms that are, that are beating their heads against the wall. 
year after year after year. And and it's not always it's not always farms at the same scale. I mean, I've seen this on farms that were that are over 100 acres doing millions of dollars in sales, and I've seen it on farms that are struggling to break 50,000. Um, that they're just it's again and again and again and the same issues and never really being able to get ahead. Uh-huh. I haven't really parsed out what what the difference is in those in those operations. And I wish I had a grand theory about it. Everybody, I, a lot of times people come to me and say, well, you should write a book, Chris. And it's like, that's <laughs> the thing. That, that's the thing I feel like if I was going to write a book, that would be the question that I wanted to answer is what is it that makes farms work and what is it that makes them not work? And I, yeah. and I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily have an answer for that. Um, that's one of the questions that I got from you know, one of our, one of your podcastees that that's, one of the questions that I got. It's it's vexing. It's a vexing yeah. question because, well, as, as a consultant, I'd love to be able to answer that question, right? I'd I'd, I'd be rich, and yeah. <laughs> and so well, would all my, and so would all my clients. But so, I, but so I, I, I will say that from just trying to start to like parse it out, you would absolutely be able to give, let's say, recommendations on what should all new beginning farmers what should be on their reading list. That's one of the questions. Okay. What, so, okay. You want me to hit, hit yeah, on that? Let's go into that. Yeah. Because, okay. it, because we can, we can tackle it from like, from small, small questions. And then maybe the answers to all of these small questions might give us some insight into your, what makes a farm work. Great. Okay. So if we were going to ask about, um, about the reading list, I would say, and, and I don't want to just sit here and plug my own book, but I'm going to go Fearless Farm Finances, which I helped co-author. I would say might even be the first book that you should read if you're mm-hmm. interested in farming. Um, you know, for me, one of the one of the revelations that that happened in my in my business was uh, when I switched from reading Wendell Berry books and Elliot Coleman books to to reading books that came out of the business section at Barnes and Noble. Uh-huh. And because that's really the point at which I said, I, and, and this, the entree to this was through employees and, and, and my, my abysmal failure as an employee manager and the, and the way that that almost wrecked my farm. And, and I had to go and learn how to do that. And, you know, Elliot Coleman doesn't talk about that. JM yeah. doesn't talk about it. Wendell Berry doesn't talk about it. These are business skills and there's a ton of stuff to be learned from the business world. The Fearless Farm Finances book, I think the 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 part about that book that I think is so exciting as a as somebody who works with farms uh-huh. is that it it gives you the tools to measure the thing that lets you farm next year. The thing that lets you farm next year is having enough money to farm next year. Right. And most farms, mo- most market farms don't have a good sense of whether they're making money and how much money they're making if they are, which actually this podcast is going to come out at a good time of the year because we're we're going to go live with this one right after the first of the year. And that's a great time to be running your balance sheet, your yeah. accrual adjusted income statement. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, um, but I think that's a really important piece. The accrual adjusted income statement basically means that you you take the dollars and cents that float into and out of your farm, and then you you make some adjustments based on the changes in your assets and liabilities. So mm-hmm. in, in how much money you owe or how many vegetables you owe and yeah. how many vegetables you have. And 
And as well as changes to, you know, tractors and box numbers and all that stuff, because those are things that I think on on businesses our size, if you buy a couple thousand dollars worth of boxes in December, that has a big effect on how your numbers look compared to buying a couple thousand dollars worth of boxes in in January. And I've seen and and I guess this is where I go like people. This is where I see people get on the rat race Um, and, and I'm I'm I'm. Liz and I are doing this show. We we've got uh we got the camera on. So even though you guys don't get to see it, and I'm kind of I'm I'm waving my hands like around in front of wheel. me, making the gerbil wheel, right? Yeah. And and uh, so what a, a typical example of what I would see is a is a is a CSA. Somebody decides they're going to start a CSA. They don't do a very good job with it because they aren't very good at growing vegetables. They um they get to the end of the year, they don't have enough money to start for next year, so they sell CSA shares in. November and December. And it actually makes it look like they had a really good year, but they owe a ton of vegetables to people, you know? And, and then, and so what you've done then, if you don't have a good way of measuring that is you've created an unrealistic expectation because now you've sold CSA shares twice in the same year. You're never going to be able to do that again, right? You're always going to be behind the eight ball on that hamster wheel. And I think that's something that that way of measuring, and it's, it's not all about the money, but, but money is what makes it possible to do what we want to do. Absolutely. And so I think, I think just the the measurement of that. And so I, that's, you know, if I had, if I had one farming book that I could say to every client, read this and do what it says to do, Mm -hmm. that would be it. That would be it. Okay. So what skill set other than other than that other than you know read these read this book read maybe another book and be prepared that way what skill set should all beginning farmers have in their tool belts wow um you basically need to know how to do everything and do it all really <laughs> fast <laughs> I think employee management is a huge one. And, and, and I would even go a step further than that and say, uh, relationship management, uh, as a, as, a, as actually looking at that as a, as a skill. Um, I, I, I don't want to sit here and claim that I'm a, I'm a pro at it. I'm good at talking about it. I know what, I know what, uh, I know, I know a good one when I see it. Okay. Um, and I know how to describe it. And I know some ways to get there, but I think, um, you know, farming is, I mean, it, it is all about relationships, right? I mean, you and, and Liz, you and I talked about this actually on your episode about about your relationship with your neighboring farmers who, uh-huh. you know, s- solid red staters, um, you know, uh, and, and how you created a relationship with them that has actually really benefited your operation. The same things, those same principles that go into that, I think, go into into managing employees. They go into managing children. Um, they go into managing your relationship with suppliers and with buyers. And and so, really, I think learning about uh, learning learning those skills of of relationship management, and and particularly as they relate, I think employee management is a great avenue to enter that realm and to kind of systematize things around how you do that. What about? In your first, let's say, two to three years of farming, what was one of the most important things that you learned in your very first couple of years? Because I think yeah. your, your tackling of employee issues happened later on, right? And, and actually, that was something that happened. So it depends on, on how we talk about my farming career, because I spent, I spent 10 years working 
for other farming operations, including a couple of years managing operations before I started my own business, Rock Spring Farm. So Mm -hmm. I I guess I would say, um, you know, at at Rock Spring Farm, that employee management issue was, was one of the biggest lessons. But since I already talked about that, the other thing was weed control. Uh-huh. Again, you want to talk about things that that wreck farms. It's drowning in weeds. Yeah. And and uh you know, again episode 13, we had Bob Kennard on. Uh Bob at Green String Farm out in California is kind of famous for uh not everybody goes, "Oh, he's famous for not controlling weeds." Well, what's actually really interesting is that he does manage those weeds. He just doesn't eliminate all of the weeds. And I, which I think, again, very cool idea if you can make it work. Uh, but but managing your weeds is something where when you do that, everything else gets easier and not just a little bit easier. We're talking twice as easy, 10 times as easy sometimes. So I think making sure that you're staying on top of those weeds, that was the you know, and our first year on on at Rock Spring Farm, we planted way too many vegetables, which meant that because planting is really easy, right? Tilling things up with a tractor, planting them, that was easy. And then we were out there with our wheel hose trying to do the weed control. And then the harvest started coming in. And then we were drowning in pigweed and lamb's quarters and thistles and quack grass and everything else. Um, the worst is picking beans when you've got ragweed in the beans. Oh, I've, got, yeah. I've got hay fever. You know, you got your nose right down in there. Right. So, I mean, and when you do a good job of the weed control, your plants grow better. You've got less disease. That means there's less culling, means there's more productivity on the plant because they aren't competing with the weeds for nutrients, light, uh, water, um, which means you've got higher yields, which makes the harvest go faster. Plus, you're not having to search through the thistles to find the beans, all of that stuff coming together. And, you know, one of those lessons, and sometimes I can be a pretty slow learner, um, I, I had to get hit with again and again and again on how critically important weed control is. And, you know, and the thing that I I want to say, before I went back to Northeast Iowa to start Rock Spring Farm, that was in 1999, I spent a couple of years managing a farm on the coast of Maine, uh, Beach Hill Farm, that had been, uh, it, it, it had been managed by somebody else for the previous 10 or 15 years. I forget exactly how old it was. And Kevin had done a really great job of weed control. And, and I didn't realize what a gift that was to the farmer who followed him. That was me Uh because it made things really easy. It was easy to succeed in that. And, and I think if you can keep your weeds under control in years one, two, and three of your business, you're really giving a huge gift to your future farmer self because when all of the other things on your farm start to get more difficult, which I think they do around year three, year four, then mm-hmm. that's where it well, then if you've done a good job of weed control prior to that and you've actually reduced the weed seed bank in your soil and you don't have a bunch of perennial weeds and you've got the systems in place, wow, it just it life's better. Why is it that you think that things get more difficult in years three and four? Maybe I'm biased because of my my own situation. Uh, year three was certainly when uh, everything went to hell in a handbasket 
for us. Um, uh-huh. We we pulled it out of the handbasket, okay, and 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 uh, and made some big changes that I think were really valuable. We learned a lot of good lessons, but you know, okay. So there's there's a, there's a joke. I'm going to tell a joke about the. See, I don't get to do that very often on the podcast because I'm because I'm always on the other side of this of this conversation. So here's my joke. So do you, Liz? Do you know why it takes three years to become a certified organic farmer? No. Because that's how long it takes to grow a ponytail. Okay. So. Okay, you were a little late on the laugh there, Liz. So, I was laughing. I just you couldn't hear me. Okay. So. I, but I also think part of why why we take that three years is that that's when the chemical crutch starts to fall apart. And if you're not taking care of your soils, if you're not doing the right things by your farm, after three years, those mistakes start to catch up to you. So if mm-hmm. you're not, especially on a vegetable farm, if you're not putting the nutrients back into the soil, uh, you know, the the compost, but then also the the absolute nutrients in there, you're doing a lot of heavy tillage. That doesn't ruin things in one year. But in three years, man, you can make a mess of things. Uh, perennial weeds are relatively easy to keep under control the first time they crop up in your fields. But if you don't do it, the next year they're bad and the third year they're a nightmare. Um, I think that three years is also that point when um, relationships get hard. It's, you know, if, if, if you're not taking good care of your relationship, you can coast a certain distance on adrenaline. Uh, but you, you, you're going to run into a situation where it's, uh, you know, th- those relationships come less sustainable at that three year point. I think that's just, and, and, you know, it's where the newness, it, the, the, the shine comes off the penny yeah. at that yes, point. Absolutely. You right. Know? And it's, it's like new and exciting anymore. It's like, it's the same old thing day after day, after day, after day. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have to figure out why you're doing it. <laughs> Yeah. If you're not making any money at it. That's right. That's right. Do you have an opinion about what size or scale you think offers the best profitability, quality of life for long-term sustainability in our, our world? No. And, and I guess the, 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 the place where I do have an opinion about that is that there is no right answer. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it, it depends on it depends on your personality. It depends on your goals. It depends on um, it depends on the price of land in your area and how much capital you've got to invest. Depends on the availability of credit for investing that cap. You know, for for raising capital. Uh, you know, it depends on your marketplace. Uh, yeah. Probably depends a lot on your soils and your season. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't so think variables. there is so many variables and I just got done editing. Uh, it's, it's going to be episode 98 with Mike Nolan, who's making a living with $80,000 of gross sales, um, uh, tractor scale, five acres, um, growing root crops, you know, doing uh-huh. what everybody else is not doing right now, you know? Uh-huh. And I, to me, that really points to. The fact that, yeah, you know, I, I think I think any there's there's room at any scale to be dramatically successful and there's room at any scale to fail dramatically. I'm very anxious to listen to that night number 98. Mike was a lot of fun to talk to. Would you say that maybe you would notice this m- maybe mostly from your consulting um, services and your just being on lots of different farms? Are there characteristics 
that you see from farm to farm that you think differentiate a struggling farm from a farm that is be is successful? Does the equipment work? In other words, you know, when you when you go to turn on the tractor, does the tractor start? Yeah. Is is the rototiller ready to go in the field? And what does the weed control situation look like? Mm-hmm. And it's not a hundred percent on those, but I'd say it's ninety eight percent on those. You can look at how that farm's dealing with their weeds and dealing with their tractors, and you know it's a really good indicator of everything else that's going on on the farm. I would agree. <laughs> okay. Do you have a personal mission statement? And if so, would you share it with us? This this comes from one of your interviewees. This is this is something that I I would tell everybody that they ought to have. Uh, you know, you should have a written goal. Um, and and I like I really like the holistic management uh, three part goal uh, that talks about quality of life and means of production and the future resource base that you're going to need to be able to do the means of production so that you have the quality of life that you want to have. Um, and I don't, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest about that. I, I just, I, I haven't put something like that together, I guess where, where, so without being eloquent, the thing that I know in the back of my head is that I, I want to be involved in agriculture. Uh, I want to be involved in helping farms and farmers to succeed you know, and in, in, in how, in, in, in whatever way they, they define that, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously as long as we're, as long as we're on the organic and local side of things, I don't think it all has to be strictly organic or strictly local, but as long as we're kind of looking at those kinds of relationships and just to be, to be having an impact in that world, uh, I'd say that's, that's really, um, it's, it's where, again, I, I think I said this before, I, I feel like it's such a blessing to have uh, uh, a venue like the podcast that has been so well received um, and and that so many people have told me is, is making a difference in their lives. You know, I'd so, like to make the world a better place. <laughs> and just is the podcast going to continue? I mean, you're moving forward and many more interviews planned on the doc. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's no, I, I don't have an end in sight for the podcast. Uh, as long as, as long as we have the the financial support that we've gotten from our sponsors uh, to date and from individuals through our Patreon program and through individual donations on, on PayPal um, those, you know, as long as I can, as long as I can make it work financially for me mm-hmm. for the amount of time uh, that I have to put into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll continue to do it. Um, so you've been doing the Farmer to Farmer podcasts and you've been doing some consulting for the last few years, which many of my friends have benefited from your fabulous knowledge and service. And um, I know you've been kind of pulling back in your consulting uh, recently. So I was just wondering kind of why and what's going to be going on, what's happening in the future. So I, I got some bad health news last last March and and it's it's taken a lot of my time and energy and it's actually resulted in me being very fatigued a lot of the time. 
well, you know, in the productivity world, everybody likes to say, oh, there's 24 hours in a day, just like everybody else. It's like, uh, no, there's not anymore. You know, I've, I've just got less to work with. So uh, because of that, I've really decided to pull back on the consulting, pull back on the speaking and and really try to focus my energies here at home. Because you're recently married. I'm recently, I'm recently married last last spring. You know, I've got a I've got a 15 year old daughter at home, um, you know. I, I want to be around those people in my life and not spend so much time on the road. And that's, you know, that's hard on everybody, including myself. Uh, we're, we're looking at doing some online courses. If I can, when I get those together, I, I keep thinking that's going to come sooner uh, than later and it keeps not happening. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah. And hopefully getting back into the writing and, and making some more resources available uh, as, as we move forward here. The one thing that I've decided that's really important to me is to continue to do the podcast. You know, it is something where I felt really lucky to have the podcast because it is something that I was able to keep going. I had some good help from my first assistant, Christy Waits, and now my uh, my new assistant, Carly Miller Hornick. You know, they've been really important in, in getting the getting the episodes out once I get them uh, recorded and edited. Uh, they're the ones that take care of getting all that stuff online so that you guys can listen to it, and that's made a really critical difference for me. I think that the that if I want to have an impact on on again on if I if I go back to my mission statement that's not really a mission statement I'm trying to think there's a good Jerry Maguire line about that my favorite movie but I can't remember what it is um I love that movie <laughs> <laughs> so anyways I, I, I'm okay so I'm not going to go down that road yeah if when I look at it and I say well how can I have the biggest impact I think it's it is really by um by making things available through the power of the internet I mean it really is a, such a great it's such a great resource for people yeah. and it does make it so easy for so many people to access the information in a way that, you know, it's a lot of fun to go and, and do a talk at a conference. It's a lot of fun to go and do the consulting, but I think that I can, I can have a bigger impact by, by kind of squirreling in here and developing the resources here at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Hey, Chris, I think that this is probably a good time to take a little break and we could get a word in from your sponsors. Awesome. Thanks, Liz. Absolutely. <laughs> Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. Vermont Compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Oh, and the donkeys are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the very best. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors and has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers and spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. 
And we are back with Chris Blanchard and the Farmer to Farmer podcast. So excited to be here today with you, Chris. I am interested in turning the wheels back just a little bit, and I'd like to know how you came, what led you to start Rock Spring Farm. Well, it, it wasn't a very straight path. I can tell you that. Um, so, okay. So I, 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 I'll go back to the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Seattle, Washington and in high school, I, I, I read a lot of Edward Abbey and, you know, and, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Ed Abbey is a, you know, he's a, was a radical environmentalist. He was kind of the, one of the founders of the earth first movement. Um, and he wrote a lot of books that were very lyrical as well as, um, as well as some books that were, were pretty rambunctious, like the monkey wrench gang about blowing up dams and stuff. Right. Okay. (laughs) Which, you know, as a, as a teenage boy, that was really appealing to me. Very exciting. (laughs) But, but the thing that I liked about what, what, what Abby talked about was it, a lot of it was, was having real impact on the environment, you know, on the state of, of caring for the environment in this country, right? I mean, to obviously blowing up a dam is a pretty radical way of having a direct impact on things. So I was, I was interested in that. I had some things happen in my senior year of high school um, that, that kind of threw me off the track. I was supposed to go be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And, and um, I had a friend that passed away in my, who was also in high school with me uh, that year. And it really, it really threw me for a loop. And I, I just like, I didn't know what to do with the information. And I was like, I, I didn't know how to process it. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I went off of my path and took this sharp fear, went and lived, uh, went fishing in Alaska, went and lived in, in Aspen, Colorado for a couple of years. Um, when I was in, in Aspen, I found, I, I decided that I, I did want to go back and, and get back into college and, and try to, um, you know, figure out a way, a way forward. Um, at this point, I, I hadn't really had any, any thoughts about farming at all. You know, I made some jokes about it. I was always known as kind of the, I think I voted the most liberal in my senior high school class or something. <laughs> so I, I, I do remember making some sketches of, of, uh, of, of, you know, the notes about being an organic hippie farmer, but it was never anything I took very seriously. In Aspen, uh, while I was in Aspen, I found out about this place called Deep Springs College, um, which is this weird little liberal arts school out on the California, Nevada state line. Uh, it's it's 24 students out in the middle of the desert and it's it happens to be an all male school it's all been a, male. all male yeah and it's actually been around since 1917 huh. okay and and the one of the things that distinguishes deep springs is that it's all of the students you you go to school in the morning, right? You got class in the morning, and then everybody works on the the working beef and alfalfa ranch in the afternoon. So I thought I'm like, oh great, I'm going to go to Deep Springs College, and I was I was like all about it, um, and and I'm like I'm going to go and I'm going to be a cowboy, and I'm going <laughs> to going to read a lot of books, and it's going to be awesome. And I went, and and instead of being a cowboy, they stuck me in the garden, and so you know. I, I was, I was kind of disappointed, right? It was a letdown, right? Cause you know, you want to be a cowboy or do you want to be uh-huh. a gardener? A gardener. <laughs> okay. So when I got there though, the, the garden was, was actually about two acres in size. So it was, it was a big garden we certainly didn't, we weren't JM 40 aing it or anything like that, but, huh? but we, and well, we weren't in anything close to that. I had a shovel and a, and a colonial hoe. Those are my tools. Okay. And, 
I was like, I, I did this and I just, I, I dove into it and I, I sang inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow all day long, every day. And, and about three months in, I woke up one morning and I said, oh, I got all the answers, right? This is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And, and you know, for me, like the garden answered all of these questions for me about, about life and death and, and about, you know, the cycle of things, right? Things live, things die. It's just, it's just part of what happens. And, you know, it, it, I found a real peace in engaging with, with living things in a way that I just hadn't before. So I decided that's what I was going to do. Um, Mike Labelman at Fairview Gardens was kind enough to give me a, an internship or an apprenticeship uh, in the, the fall of 1991. That was out in Santa Barbara. Um, this was after you graduated. This is uh, this was actually in my term off from okay, from okay. DC. So during my 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 not everybody left during the summer at D Spring. So it's during my term off, which happened to be in the fall of of two, of uh, 1991. I went and worked with Michael Abelman at Fairview Gardens as an apprentice for two months. Uh, that was over in Santa Barbara. Um, came back, decided that I was going to go out to the University of Wisconsin to finish up my horticulture degree. Michael actually probably gave me some of the best advice I ever got. He said that I never took either. He said, so you want to be a farmer, right? I'm like, yeah. He says, well, why in the world are you going to go get a college degree? Huh. Yeah, good point. You know, <laughs> although it, it certainly did help with getting some of the jobs that got me to being a farmer. I don't know that it did actually make me a better farmer. Um, so I went to the University of Wisconsin. I worked on a on a potato research farm up in northern Wisconsin in Rhinelander. Um did the the hurry up course uh, and and got out of school in a year and a half at the university was at, at the UW and in the in the meantime met up with uh, Richard DeWild and and Linda Halley who was then at Harmony Valley Farm in Verocal, Wisconsin uh -huh. and worked there for the summer and really I think that's where I got a vision of what a farm a vegetable farm could actually look like and you know Richard at that point was was farming about thirty acres of produce you know now he's doing. I hundred and some odd. So it's a much larger operation, but it was, it was for me, it really set the tone for very clean produce, um, you know, working fast, working hard. And I was so lucky to be a part of a very small team because it was Richard and Linda. And for a lot of the summer, it was just me and, and then a whole crew of, of Hmong workers you know, uh -huh. but in terms of the people that, that were kind of making the decisions about what was going on on a day to day basis, I, I was just right there and I was I managed the packing shed. Um, so while I was at school, I, I met my my first wife. Um, I went back to Seattle. I worked in a nursery. I came back to Wisconsin. I worked in the care and improvement project at, at the University of Wisconsin um, and somehow managed to parlay that thanks to John Navazio into a, a job managing the gardens at Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa. You know, so we did, and there I was, you know, raising seeds and heirlooms and and all of that. Um, left that job under under less than auspicious circumstances. Went out to uh, went out to Seattle, where I was from, lived with my folks. If you ever want think, things not to do in your life, if you can possibly avoid it, is to live in your parents' basement with your two kids. Um, and oh. then um, that didn't work so well. So we ended up moving up to Bellingham. I did some some consulting work for Cascadian Farm when they had. And this was something that I think was really influential for me. They had just gone east of the mountains. They had said they'd given up on trying to get 
all of the growers west of the mountains to to give them the consistent quantity and quality of produce that they needed. And they, they went out to conventional growers in eastern Washington and they said, if you'll grow this produce organically, we'll teach you how to do it. Okay, But you guys fundamentally know how to grow vegetables for processing. All we need to do is make it organic. And so it was really cool working with them. I got a job out in Maine. Again, thank you, John DeVazio at Beach Hill Farm uh, on Mount Desert Island. I mentioned that earlier. Managed that farm for a couple of years and finally had scrapped together enough savings uh, through a little bit of luck to come back to Decorah, Iowa in 1999 and start Rock Spring Farm. Uh, We found this, you know, beautiful, beautiful piece of land. I think anybody that's ever seen a picture of it, you know, Northeast Iowa is not like the rest of Iowa, right? Uh, Right. it's, it's, It's hilly. It's actually Valley E country. It's the Driftless uh-huh. region. It didn't get it didn't get glaciated the last time the glaciers came south. Um, we had five acres of really beautiful ground there. We bought a comp- the farm was a completely run down. The house, um, you know, when you buy farmland, they value the house and the and the rest of the farm separately. And right. so the house was actually appraised at fourteen thousand dollars. And the realtor said. Oh, you guys can't live there. And we're like, right. oh, yes, we can. Oh, yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is so familiar to right. me, Chris. Typ- <laughs> typical, typical farmer story, right? Yeah. And um and and so we just when we just and we dove in and we just made it work. You know, we were building greenhouse. We bought the land in um in July, end of July in, in 1999. And by the end of August, we were building greenhouses. And, uh, and it just, and it kind of ran from there. And for how long? So, well, so Rock Spring Farm. So we started August of 1999. Um, I think I always get, I get a little bit confused about the years on this, but I think I formally stopped selling product in the summer of 2014. But I'm like how many acres and then grew to what? So let's, Yeah. yeah, let's start there. So so we started, we had five acres of really good bottomland at the uh-huh. farm and, um, you know, kind of in the, in the classic, what you get in the driftless region is you have these river valleys. They, at some point there was a beaver dam across it and all the, all the soil silted in, in there. And that made, that was the basis of our, of our farm ground. Um, we grew up to eventually we were growing about 20 acres of vegetables. We had about 30 acres at that point about 30 acres under cultivation. Uh, so we were doing a pretty intensive cover crop rotation on that. But a lot of that was was very clayey hillsides, really brought home to me how important good land is to farming and, and how easy it is to farm on flat ground. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> the other thing about that funny, that, that five acres, right? That was five acres of tillable ground in the bottoms. Well, what that meant by the time we took out the field roads and the ends to turn around in and we actually had much closer to about four acres, which actually made a big difference in our crop planning and really brought home to me like the importance of actually measuring and, yes. you know, really um, not just going on on like, oh, we have five acres to fill up, but actually getting out there and going how many beds and how long is each of the beds and how are we going to fill those up? Mm-hmm. Where are the field roads going to go? Yeah. Um, we did you know, and this was back in, again, 1999, we built some mobile high tunnels because one of the, one of the really neat things when I was at Peach Hill Farm in Maine is we were maybe an hour and a half away from Elliot Coleman. And, uh-huh. and I, I'm not going to go so far as say like Elliot, you know, Elliot certainly wasn't like a mentor to me because I just wasn't in that situation at that time. But 
you know, he let me come over and help him harvest spinach. We helped him move these greenhouses. He came over and visited our farm. And that kind of, again, this very personal care for somebody who was young and 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 getting started in the business was just, I mean, it was so cool. I like, I called Elliot on the phone and he's like, yeah, come on over. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, Elliot also happens to live in the na- same neighborhood where if anybody knows the book, Blueberries with Sal, the common children's book. So you, actually, as you're driving over there from, from Mount Desert Island, you actually drive past all these landmarks from from those from those books that's kind of funny anyways side sidebar so we we built mobile high tunnels right off the bat and so we were doing four season production uh that that first winter 1999-2000 we started off so decora iowa was about eight thousand people in the middle of nowhere it's like the economic center for for where it is it's Uh an it's an hour and a half from lacrosse it's an hour and a half from rochester uh, Minnesota. It's uh-huh. an hour and a half from Cedar Rapids and in, in Iowa. And then, um, and it's about three hours South of, uh, of the twin cities uh-huh. in Minnesota. So uh-huh. we started off our first year in 2000, we were marketing to, um, to, to at a farmer's market in Rochester. We had a small CSA. We were doing the farmer's market in Decorah, um, really became disenchanted with the farmer's market in Decorah. Cause we could take the same tomatoes we could take to, um, we could take to Rochester. We could sell them for two dollars or two fifty a pound. If we took them to to Decora, we were selling them for seventy five cents, or uh-huh. else they wouldn't move. And we we're like, "Oh, this makes no sense at all whatsoever." So we just we moved our whole business up to Rochester, and in fact, had an opportunity where another CSA had gone out of business in the Twin Cities, and they offered to market our CSA shares up there to kind of help us get a toehold. And so this was in 2001, we made that leap up into the twin cities and really scaled up our operation. Um, and, and, and then established the CSA picked up one food co-op, picked up another food co-op. This is where we started having like a lot of pressure on our land and we were going, oh, and now we're going to have to start growing things on the ridge. And uh-huh. that was a mess. And because it was, you know, it was in hay fields and it was this heavy clay, icky soil and not suitable for vegetables very much. Um, but we we figured we, we made it work and then gradually just kept growing the operation, not out of any, not going like there was a number that we were going to it was just like every year we just get a little bit bigger and we'd grow a little bit more food and get a little bit bigger and grow a little bit more food and um, eventually rented some ground down the road. Um, so that's that's kind of how that worked in 2006. Um, well, I would say the other thing we did in in uh, well in 2000 we 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 built our first packing shed, which was a slab of concrete with a high tunnel over it and a, uh-huh. and a little eight foot by eight foot walk in cooler, which we actually. I, I think we did our, at our most about um, about a quarter of a million dollars out of that little eight by eight walk in cooler, uh, which was a lot of cramming stuff in and rotating stuff. It really brought home to me the importance of having some excess capacity right. when you're doing stuff. So, so uh-huh. yeah, so that's we eventually. So uh, we because of my experience at Harmony Valley Farm. Uh, we did a lot of work with uh, root crops, a lot of work with salad greens in those early years. Um, and eventually that led us into uh, the clamshell herb business, which became very important to us starting in 2005, 2006. It was mm-hmm. a real cornerstone of the operation for the for the rest of the time we were in business. Okay. So. And and you, then you stopped farming 2000. 2000- 
2000, uh-huh. I think it was 2014 that I actually started farming. I got a divorce in 2009 and, um, Divorces are really hard on farms, you know, and this is is one of those reasons why, I mean, as a business decision, as a business decision, putting an emphasis on your relationships is really important. Divorces is devastating financially. And, and, and it came on the heels of a major infrastructure investment. We built a new packing shed. We built a new house on the farm because literally the house that we were in was, was falling down around us really by, by 2013, 14, it, it was becoming pretty apparent that the, that I, I couldn't balance the demands of the farm and the demands of the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I had a woman that I loved who wasn't part of the farm, Angie, who we got married to last last spring. Uh, my daughter, Isabel, uh, I had primary custody of her. Her mom moved away. And, uh-huh. and you know, and, and, and I also had this, this other thing that was kind of developing – uh, to 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 use an overused word organically um in in 2008 uh, I was approached by Margaret Smith at, at Iowa State University Extension to work on a project about scaling up and about packing houses um, yeah. and that was what kind of launched my consulting business so I was I was all of a sudden I was juggling all of these things oh and then the other thing that was was in all this right is that I was doing the um I was also organizing a fair portion of the Moses organic oh, farming oh, conference exactly. yeah right. and, and and going and speaking Speaking at other conferences, which is where I met you yep. for the first time down here at Great Plains Vegetable Growers Conference. That's right. Way back. Way, way back, back in the way back. And yeah. And so it, it was just kind of this process of looking around and going, is this really where I'm going to live my best life? And the answer came back, no. So we um we I just I decided we were going to close down the farm. And and so we closed down, sold it, moved to town. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that was in decor and then moved over here uh, a year and a half ago to, uh, to Madison, Wisconsin. And so you were really integrally involved in Moses for a number of years and now, now maybe not so much because the podcast is really taking a lot of time. Yeah. And, and it just, Moses wasn't a good fit, uh, for me anymore. Um, you know, I think that was 2012, 2013. And, um, you know, it was, I I think kind of like the farm, it, it was, it was something I had done what I could do with it, with the energy that I was able to put into it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I, I actually got involved with the conference because in 1999, uh, we traveled back from Maine in the spring. We traveled back and went to the conference and organized our whole trip out here to look for land kind of around the time of the conference. And I was really disappointed because there were all these workshops. And I I'd, I'd remembered this being this great conference. And there were workshops on things like hemp production and, you know, building greenhouses that where the, the presenter got up and talked about the greenhouses he was building out of wood and how they'd fallen down. And I was like, I was like, wait, 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 this is not right. And so I somehow, I mean, of course I got squeaky wheel and what happened, squeaky wheel gets the grease, but the squeaky wheel also gets put to work. And so I got drafted basically into being on the workshop committee and then ended up heading up the workshop committee, which eventually turned into me being the workshop coordinator for the, for the conference, which is what I did there. So, uh, you know, organizing all of the workshops at the show and, uh, and yeah, so there was, I mean, all of those different things kind of just went into, um, where did that, where did the idea for the podcast, when did that start (laughs) kind of back in the timeline? 
Well, you know, so somewhere around the time, I mean, what smartphones, uh, iPhone came out, I think in 2008, I got my first Android phone in 2011, I think. No, 2009. Um, you know, and that's the point at which I started kind of just plugging into podcasts and, and, uh, Angie and I actually took a trip one weekend. We were going up to uh, Gardens of Egan from uh, which is kind of up towards the Twin Cities from Decorah. So we had a couple hour drive and we were listening to podcasts. And she's like, she says, you should do a podcast. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. And she's like, yeah, you should really do a podcast. And and so we ended up um, we ended up sitting down after the after the field day, having a beer in, in Northfield and, and kind of sketched out a, a rough business plan for the podcast. And, and that was in August. And so then I just started, I started pulling together the equipment and trying to learn about how to do it. And, you know, um, I had, I'd actually volunteered at a radio station in Aspen, Colorado. When I lived there, it was, uh, um, let me just think, Oh, K a J X public radio, for the roaring Fork Valley. And I would do the news and sometimes I would actually get really lucky and I would be able to, the the person who came in after the news um, was supposed to do the jazz show and, and every now and then she just wouldn't show up. And so I would end up, you couldn't leave the station on, on man before uh-huh. midnight when we turned it over to another station in Wyoming. So I, I'd end up staying and, and doing the jazz show. I knew nothing about jazz, but I just, I loved it. So I, I really enjoyed doing, I, I enjoyed being on radio. I really liked that. It was always something I kind of held on to. In fact, that Deep Springs, which was super isolated, we didn't get any radio there. Um, we actually set up um, during the time that I was there. We set up a, a transmitter to get across the across the White Mountains. So we'd pick up the the signal from Santa Cruz on the west side of the mountains, and we had wires that ran it over to the east side of the mountain and broadcast, and then a and and transmitted that down to the college where we had a little tiny illegal FM transmitter down there. <laughs> so we had public radio for the for the Deep Springs Valley, and so that was kind of cool. And so. And and I also, you know, this is where I also at Deep Springs have to give a little bit of a shout out to to one of my first mentors, Dave Stidell, who was the farm manager while I was there. And really he and Jane um just taught me so much about life and about about farming and and growing things and kind of being in touch with with the world. Again, in that very active getting your hands dirty sort of a way. Dave was a Dave was a radio guy from San Francisco before he became a farm manager. So yeah, kind of all of that. So so I had all these this kind of this romantic notion about what was going to happen. And and then I had people who were willing to humor me and do the interviews and and uh and we gradually pieced it together until I I got finally got the thing launched. In fact, I said I launched it at the Moses conference, but and I and I always, you know, I like to have this image where I'm all like organized and have my act together and everything. But you know, <laughs> so it's I, I wanted to go live at the Moses conference because I was doing a workshop at the conference. And I was actually doing two. And I wanted to be able to say at the workshop that I had this podcast because I figured that would be a nice way to just get people interested, a nice audience to say that to. And I ended up staying up until like four o'clock in the morning on Friday morning doing the last of the edits on the podcast. So I was sitting there, you know, trying to find the the right tractor sounds for the intro and the outro and editing the, you know, editing your episode to try to get that together. And then and, you know, sitting there in the hotel room while my 
my my wife Angie was sleeping uh, in in the next in the you know we we had a suite so she was in the next room and I'm and I'm sitting there going you know welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast you know it's it's the Farmer to Farmer trying to figure out how I was going to say all that stuff so it was kind of crazy well, yeah we got it that, that guys that's that's kind of the story of getting the podcast started uh huh and what a huge success it has been what a huge success it has been well and yeah. and again I you know something like this. I don't want to come off as, as like falsely modest or anything like that, but something like this doesn't happen without people being willing to be on the show, be willing to take a chance at listening to the show. I mean, what we do here shouldn't work. A 90 minute long form podcast is almost unheard of. Nobody does this. And yet somehow it seems to work. And Again, I just I think there's a magic there with the organic farming community and maybe the farming community in general that we're we're good people. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of interesting stories out there and people are willing to people are willing to open up and and share about about what goes on in, you know, very realistically on their farms. And I just I love that. And it wouldn't it wouldn't happen without that. And it wouldn't happen without people being willing to download the episode and and basically on faith say sure chris be in my ear for the next 90 minutes mhm mhm so thanks no thank you thank you chris really um i think i think i can absolutely say for the 8,000 people out there that how many did you say have downloaded? Yeah, 8, it, 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 it depends. It depends on the episode, but we, we're, we run between eight and 15,000 per episode. Yeah. So for all of those 15,000 folks out there that are farming and listening to your podcasts, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's my, <laughs> it's my, it's my pleasure. It really is. You know, one of the things I think would be hard about, about leaving a farm and, and, um, Linda Halley actually told me this when, when I, Linda Halley, who used to, used to be at a partner at Harmony Valley farm, eventually managed gardens of Egan, um, was a, was a guest on the show. I can't remember what episode, um, has been a good friend of mine for a, for a very long time. And, you know, she, she said to me when I was, when I was getting my divorce, she said, you know, Chris, you, you, you need to figure out who you are beyond the farm, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it was really scary because for me, I was the farm, right? Chris Blanchard, Rock Spring Farm. You know, my my kids all answered the phone. Hello, <laughs> Rock Spring Farm. Um, you know, because this was back, remember landlines? Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I and, still have one. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and, you know, this, this was, it was so much a part of my identity and, you know, leaving the farm was kind of ripping a piece out of me. And, and I, I was kind of scared about what was going to come next and who was I going to be without the farm, you know? And I just, I, I feel so fortunate to have fallen into this role. Well, we, we are, we are also very lucky that you have fallen into this role um, because you have filled a huge void, I think, and are providing a voice to an in- immense amount of information and resource and knowledge that, you know, 
all of us small farmers were so spread across the country and there's no way that I could have the opportunity to say, meet Amigo Bob and hear his story, except for through the podcast. Um, and the same thing, you know, for all of the different guests that you've had on the show. So again, thank you very much. Um, we're going to do the lightning round. Because I've got a bunch of quick questions to ask you. I would like to thank Farm Commons for their support of the show. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. Geared for the direct-to-consumer and organic producer, Farm Commons free legal guides and tutorials provide a practical and realistic resource for farmers. In my consulting work, I often need to deepen my understanding of the ins and outs of the legal side of things, and Farm Commons is always, and that's not an exaggeration, always the first place I turn. Whether I'm looking for information built on building a legally resilient CSA program, the ins and outs of paying in-kind wages, or just trying to get a better general understanding of how to work with regulators, Farm Commons boils that information down to the nuts and bolts of what you really need to know without having to wade through the regulations. Visit farmcommons.org to access a wealth of information about this important part of your farm business. And we are back with Chris Blanchard. Thank you very much for this fabulous interview so far. I have some lightning round questions for you. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Again, these are submitted from many of your previous podcast interviewees. Should we we say previous victims? Previous victims. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I would like to know, do you think that all farmers should have a business plan coming at you from Paul Arnold? No, I don't. All right. What is your favorite farmer to farmer episode? That's as bad as what's my favorite tool on the farm. Um, <laughs> I'm looking here. So I, do, uh, yeah, do, hold on. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Liz, this is like asking me what's my favorite <laughs> child. Okay. Um, I think my favorite, I mean, if I had to, if I had to pick one, uh, it would be Dan Kaplan uh, on shared risk and shared loss at Brookfield farm. I, uh, huh? you know, it's a great episode. It, and, and I guess for a couple of reasons, I mean, one that, that was the first one that I felt like really resonated with a wide spectrum of the community. I think it was the one that kind of took the podcast and, and made it into, into something that was, uh, was a, a topic of conversation among farmers and, mm-hmm. and really kickstarted that. So, I mean, it's kind of like, kind of like carrots were for rock spring farm. You know, it wasn't necessarily my favorite crop to grow. Um, but it was, man, they were, they were the thing that people would come to our stand to get. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Okay. So what is your favorite tool on the farm? <laughs> you know, my, my favorite tool on the farm is, um, and, and I'm, I'm not going to take one of these, I'm not going to go one of these ways, say like a computer or spreadsheets. Cause there, I mean, there's a lot of good tools out there. Um, my, the tool that I enjoy using the most is the collineal hoe. Oh. And, and I'm, it was the first garden tool that I learned how to use actually at deep Springs. So the, the, the guy who was the garden manager before me, we had, a, we had two weeks where we overlapped, uh, before he left, um, 
because he was he was graduating from these springs and he uh he taught me how to use that and it's always felt like just something magical it always takes me back it's it's so precise you know that that thin little blade and that angle and you get to you know you stand up and you get to kind of throw your shoulders back and down and and you're holding that with the thumbs up and just and and sort of just grooming the soil sweeping right underneath it and when it when it when the conditions are right it's just it's such a light and beautiful tool Mm-hmm. And it, you have great memories using it. And I love, yeah, I have great memories using it. And, and, <laughs> um, and, you know, it also makes me feel like, like Elliot Coleman. Right. So I feel like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, coming at you from Clara Coleman. What's one superpower you would like to have on the farm? It's the same one that everybody else wants. It, it, it would be weed control, right? It would be the ability to, to shoot little blasters out of my eyes and take care of the Canada <laughs> thistle. <laughs> All right. Why do you love kohlrabi so much? <laughs> <laughs> From dearest Steve Tomlinson. Yeah, you know, I don't. <laughs> and and it's, I don't know, it's to me, like, kohlrabi's kind of like, what do I say, like the epitome of a CSA share gone wrong. You know, it's it's like this weird little vegetable that you put into a CSA share because you need to fill up the space or because you can grow it. Um, you know, it comes on early in the spring, but nobody really knows what to do with it. And it's really not anything special. Like, I mean, I don't know, like the flavor doesn't of kohlrabi doesn't, doesn't make you go like, Oh, wow. You know, yeah, kohlrabi. <laughs> all right. You know, and it's this weird, ugly looking thing. I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I guess that's, that's why it just, and you know what? It's also kind of fun to pick on Steve. Absolutely. All the time. <laughs> um, what was the last book that you read? Well, I'm, I'm not going to go with the last book that I read, but the, the last story that I read, because it's part of a book, is is Stories of Your Life by uh, by Ted Chang. It's the story that the movie Arrival was based on. And, and it's, you know, I don't know. I The movie Arrival, I watched that and I cried and it really touched me. And and so I just, uh, yeah, I loved it. I was like, I have to go read that. So I, I pulled that out and just finished uh, finished that one last night. Well, I haven't read that book, nor have I seen that movie. So highly recommended. Highly okay. recommended. I'm going to end with the last question of if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know, Liz. Um, I tell myself to, uh, I, I don't, I don't know how exactly I'd put it, but don't take yourself so seriously. Don't, um, it's going to be okay. And you don't have to have such tight control over things. And, and I think, you know, along with that, um, would be, uh, you know, learn to manage your emotions and, you know, don't be don't be ruled by the things around you, but but figure out a way to to have a little bit of detachment because you know, life's hard enough as it is, right? I mean, you know, being married, having kids, having to go grocery shopping, um, driving to town. I mean, all of those things are rough. And then you add in the vegetable farm and the weather and uh and employees and markets and produce managers and uh there you know it, it's it's easy to get upset it's easy to get uh to 
to to worry a lot and to um I don't know to worry all the fun away, you know. And uh, if I could go back in time and and say one thing, it would be, hey, you know, you gotta you gotta figure out a way to enjoy this. Um, and it's, and you don't get to do that by just saying, I'm going to enjoy this. You know, you, you actually had to, for me, um, the thing I did, uh, nine years too late and I'm still working on it is, is, uh, you know, learning how to, yeah, learning how to manage my emotions, learning how to not, well, to, to be blunt, learning how not to be an asshole, um, especially to uh especially to the people that it it matters the most to okay all right well again chris thank you so much on behalf of all of the listeners out there thank you so much for the farmer to farmer podcast thank you for all of your hard work and for being for me such a wonderful friend and mentor and i'm wishing you much health and prosperity and a wonderful next few years. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 100 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Blanchard. That's B-L-A-N-C-H-A-R-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Growing for Market. Get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. And by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. EarthTools.com You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, I'd ask you to head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.